Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Well, hello everyone. Welcome uh, to today's live talk from Pituitary World News. Uh, I'm here with Dr. Lewis Blevins. As usual in today, we're going to talk about medical decision-making. Uh, these are the things that physicians really take into consideration and think about when making decisions on treatment. It's not an uncomplicated subject. These are very complicated issues, and I'm looking forward to getting Dr. Blevins' uh, perspective on this. Uh, so today, to get ready for this talk, I really didn't know much about it, so I did a little research and reviewed a bunch of scholarly articles on it, and uh, that's sort of dangerous sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the first thing caught, that caught my attention was uh, the fact that uh, medical decision-making is actually a field of study. There is actually a, an organization called the Society for Medical Decision-Making that studies all of this stuff, which is really interesting. Uh, and uh, I thought I would read you this um, explanation from this society and what, doctor, what uh, uh, they explain as medical decision-making is and then get Dr. Blevins' uh, point of view and approach on it. So, so here it goes. Uh, so according to the, uh, medical, the Society for Medical Decision-Making, medical decision-making science is a field that encompasses several related pursuits. As a normative invader in endeavor, it proposes standards for ideal decision-making. As a descriptive endeavor, it seeks to explain how physicians and patients routinely make decisions and have identified both barriers and facilitators to effective decision-making. And as a prescriptive ende endeavor, it seeks to develop tools that can guide physicians, their patients, and healthcare policymakers to make good decisions in their practice. So I think today what we're going to talk about with Dr. Blevins is about the practical and clinical aspects of, of uh, medical decision-making and how it affects our patients' everyday lives. So what do you think of that definition, Dr. Blevins? Complicated, huh? Well, my first thought is you're just a, you're, you're one of those patients who did a Google search, didn't you? <laughs> That's exactly what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> yeah, just kidding around. I actually I love it. I love it when my patients uh, um, try to learn more about their disease process. That's you know that's empowerment, right? And uh, learning to interact with uh, healthcare professionals, understanding the lingo, educating healthcare professionals who don't um, have the the depth of knowledge that they should have to take yeah. care of patients with pituitary tumors, uh, for example. It's always fun to joke about, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I, yeah. So I thought we'd get started. So why don't you tell us, the, in, in your in your view, the factor that uh, the factors in medical decision making. What are the the key things that uh, play a key role here? What's well, What's interesting if you reduce it down to what making a decision that's deciding to take an action or to not take an action, right? Because it may be to decide, yeah. decide against something. Sort of like, uh, you know, you go out your front door and you realize that, oh, it's cold. You have to decide, are you going to put on a coat or are you going to wait for it? Just go and be cold for a while, wait for it to warm up later in the day. That's a, that's a decision. We all, we all make decisions that are simplistic and straightforward like that, or, 
or maybe deciding about a job change or a move or what have you. And mm -hmm. uh, medical decision making is pretty much like that. It can be very simple, straightforward, or it can be extremely complex. And uh, unfortunately, most of the time it's very complex. And I, I sort of, before we started, wrote down a number of things that I think make it complex when it comes to the uh, decision making in the field of medicine. And these aren't in any particular order. They're off the top of my head. It's probably not an all-inclusive list, but uh, you know, we th there's the physiology of the human body. There's the pathophysiology of disease and how a disease affects the normal physiology and can manifest itself. Uh, usually in pituitary patients, there may be a tumor or inflammation or some other disease process. And most of these disease processes are in different stages. Some of them are far advanced and others are just initiating. Um, and then you have the effect that a disease process can affect multiple systems, uh, such as a pituitary tumor affecting other pituitary functions, for example. Um, symptoms vary from patient to patient, even when the same disease process is going on. This is related to varying degrees of biological responses. And as you know, uh, you recently went to the acromegaly conference. Everybody's acromegaly is different. Mm -hmm. hundred people with acromegaly, they're all different people and they all have different acromegaly, different manifestations, different side effects and, and consequences. There are also varying degrees or of, of, of an illness and varying lengths or duration of an illness that uh, play a role as well in things that have to be considered when making decisions. Um, and furthermore, some of the things that aren't patient dependent are the physicians involved, institutions involved, the experience those folks have, what's available. I saw a lady this week who is from India and they don't have the ability to get somatostatin analogs or, or pegvisomont in her country. So, you know, what's available is, is another thing that has to be considered. Uh, you have to look at the patient's prior treatment history, what's worked, what hasn't worked. Uh, and then um, other medical problems a patient has, other drugs that might confound uh, a treatment or a diagnosis. Um, and the medical decisions we make are based on all of these things plus more. Uh, you, you look at an overall situation and and largely based on what you know by reading the literature and the and the information that you've gleaned by many years of practice, you make mm -hmm. a decision uh, on either a diagnostic test or what the diagnosis might be, what the complications of, of the disease process might be, and what forms of therapy might be required uh, and which might be the best course of action to proceed with based on all of those things and recognizing that every patient is individual and um, that uh, no two no two patients should really be treated alike because everybody is different, different backgrounds, different jobs, different socioeconomic status, um, other medical problems, etc. So as an experienced physician, medical decision-making takes all of this stuff into consideration and then makes a decision about the best appropriate next step. Mm -hmm. uh, what should we do? What tests should we do? What what diagnosis do we have? What treatment is required? How are we going to follow up after treatment? It's not as simple and as straightforward as deciding whether you're going to put on your coat, though. And I think a lot of times patients read something online and figure that that's something that they need or that they want. Um, and um, 
try to in, interject that into the doctor patient relationship and in many cases it's very appropriate other times it's not uh, and that's that's medical decision making in itself is to determining yeah. determining whether something is actually required uh, as far as diagnosis or treatment are concerned that's that's so interesting i'm, I'm wondering um as i hear you the in pituitary disease it seems like there's so many possibilities or, mm-hmm. or things that have to consider whether uh, the more uh, if, if the number of, of factors is higher whether people have a tougher or the, the number of roads that you can take with that patient if people have a tougher decision uh, a tougher time making a decision if there's a lot of options versus if there's a f- there's a few options or whether you as a physician, organize these options so it's easier for the patient to make a decision. Does that, yeah. It makes sense. That's a very good question. I think it's the role of a physician to educate patients along the way through this decision-making process in order to help the patient arrive at a conclusion or at least arrive in an agreement in the case of a physician says, here's what you need. Yeah, uh, to uh, to sort of come to the right decision in the end. I, I like to think of the doctor-patient relationship. We've talked about this before, where it's sort of a sliding scale, if you will, where um, at one end, the patient has all the decision-making. You know, the doctor says, you've got to lose weight. You're overweight. You've got hypertension, diabetes. You want that to get better. You've got to lose weight and diet. That's 95% of that's on the patient. The doctor has the 5% of educating Point the patient out, about yeah. what needs to be done. But if you're in an emergency room with chest pain and your blood pressure is dropping and your EKG shows, you know, that you have a, an acute myocardial infarction or otherwise known as a heart attack, 95% of that's on the physician to do everything that's required to take care of you. And there's a sliding scale in between those two extremes where doctors and patients work together mm-hmm. uh, to arrive at a decision plan for follow-up treatment, et cetera. And um, and I think that the, in that arena, it's up to the physician to sort of assess the patient's fund of knowledge and understanding, educate when necessary, and maybe either lead the patient down the path of making the decision of what needs to be done or encouraging them to just sort of proceed in a, in a manner that would be most keeping with the most appropriate way to take care of the situation, uh, or presenting the option so that the patient can choose in a in a fair, respectable way amongst all the options. Uh, after all, it is the patient who is the one that has the disease and mm-hmm. oftentimes is paying for the treatment and has to live with the consequences of treatment. So we do have situations where we will give the patient that choice amongst several different different things. A physician might uh, prefer one choice over another, uh, but certainly should present those options and those preferences to the patient and work within the framework of the particular patient and their overall situation status and all these other factors that play a role in decision-making. Yeah. But I, I think from, you know, the, I guess, patient perspective or the, if the choices are too many, seems to me personally, it would be more complicated for me to make a decision if the choices are, you know, fewer. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, and that, that to... may not that may not be a you know a fair thing because if things are complicated, they're complicated. Yeah, they <laughs> are. And to give you an example of of where that was applicable, recently I had a patient who had uh, uh, residual Cushing's disease after surgery at another institution came to me and asked, uh, uh, "What do I do for medical therapy?" And I actually sent her to our series of podcasts uh-huh. that we've done on Pituitary World News about the different medical options to treat residual or recurrent hypercortisolism. I said, listen to the five or six podcasts and tell me what you're interested in doing. And uh, she narrowed the choice of five or six drugs down to, to two drugs and said, what should I do? And I said, really, the choice is yours. Now let's talk about these two drugs and why one might be better than another in certain situations and vice versa and the different side effect profiles, et cetera. And she chose one of the medications based on that. Uh, uh, so we, we we were able to successfully narrow down that list of choices for her yeah, yeah. Uh, through allowing her to get better educated, then having a discussion about two drugs instead of five or so uh, and, uh, and proceeding in that way. And, and that was a good buy-in for therapy for her. You know, because she was much more interested in taking the the treatment uh, that she had selected. Far more, com- you know, compliance is going to be better. Compliance not only with taking the medication but also long term follow up. And I think that's often a good way to do it when there are several different choices. Either educate the patient or lead them to the to the source of education so that they can hear what you have to say. Uh, and the nice thing about having the the articles and the podcasts on Pituitary World News is I can send patients there and they can spend an hour or more listening and reviewing and studying, whereas in, a, in an office environment, uh, an exam room visit where I have 20 minutes with a patient, maybe five minutes of time can be carved out to do the same thing that they can do in an hour on their own. So yeah. uh, I've found that Pituitary World News and the things that we do is a useful adjunct to the practice of medicine in that regard. That's right. That's here. Fantastic to hear. <laughs> One of the things that, that, that I find to be very, you know, the longer you practice medicine, I've been a physician for 35 years now, but the longer you practice medicine, the, the, the more you know that you don't know, but you also sort of start con- to recognize certain things that are important in decision-making and and, and I have a number of those. One is uh, what's the relevance? You know, what's the relevance of a particular laboratory test or a treatment or whatever? Uh, how applicable is it to the patient's situation? And what's the desired outcome? And I think that looking at things from that perspective can often help and uh, facilitate the decision-making process. For example, if a patient comes and says, I, I want to be treated with this drug, well, that might not be relevant for their situation. So I need to educate them about why that not, might not be a reasonable mm-hmm. choice. Uh, and um, many times patients will ask a question about doing something with regards to their treatment. It might not be applicable. So, for example, the patient with central adrenal insufficiency who says, how come I don't take Florinef? I read online people take Florinef. I want to take Florinef. Well, it's not applicable to your to your central adrenal insufficiency. It's applicable to primary adrenal insufficiency. Yeah. And then what is the outcome? You know, so and, and can the decision that you're making potentially lead to that desired outcome that can be measured uh, in the end? Uh, so I think those are the those are the three cornerstones, if you will, of of a lot of the decisions that we make in endocrinology. 
when it comes to outcomes, sometimes it's fairly simple and straightforward. You know, I tell patients all the time that we're, uh, you know, if, if you want to thought of, think about how we make decisions, it's like playing Goldilocks, you know, too high is not good. Too low is not good. It has to be just right. So that applies for about any hormone situation you can think of. Yeah. You know, so they, they, they added, I think from, from a lay person's point of view, complication is that it seems, and I'm not sure this is true, but it appears to me. So you can you can tell me if you when you tweak one hormone, you may untweak another one, and there's a uh, there's sort of a balance that that uh, that you have to um, achieve uh, that that everybody that you have to that makes it even more complicated because yeah, by, exactly. by fixing one thing, you affect you may be affecting other things, and sometimes non medical factors like you know weight gain or uh you know um tiredness or you know lack of energy that may be uh, because of a medication that you're taking so or side yeah. effects and those are there are so many if this yeah. and that's in in the field of pituitary medicine that it's yeah. uh, it's unbelievable so, so you're you're con- uh, sorry uh, you're um seems like you're you're always in sort of this gray area it's never that black and white right right yeah, yeah. and it, you know the other thing that I, I didn't address earlier is there's so many little caveats to the practice of pituitary medicine and and one example today uh, from a patient today that is uh, that talks about the relevance is that uh, i once heard a physician say to me um the physician was a patient uh, why are you measuring LH and FSH? That's not relevant. I'm postmenopausal, but it's very relevant, you know, because LH and FSH are supposed to be high in postmenopausal women. And if it's not high, you know, the pituitary function has been compromised. Yeah. Um, the patient I saw today is a postmenopausal woman who had a paracellar meningioma and had radiotherapy for that. We expect that there's a 60 to 80 percent chance that she's going to develop one or more pituitary hormone deficiencies and i've been following her hormones over a period of about two to three years now since her radiation and um you know someone someone would say well she's in menopause or lh and fsh and they'd be high and they certainly were three years ago her fsh was 120 it's now 60. a year ago it was 80. Uh, a half a year after radiotherapy, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was about 120. Hmm. Uh, so what's the relevance of checking this level in this person? This tells me that her pituitary gland is starting to fail after radiotherapy. The first thing we often see is growth hormone deficiency and gonadotropin deficiency. So she's developing a fall in her gonadotropins and she, it's telling me that her pituitary gland function is declining over time. So where some might think it's irrelevant to check the FSH in a, in a elderly postmenopausal woman, to me, it's very relevant because it gives me that clue that the pituitary function is starting to decline. So I'm going to watch very much more carefully for uh, the onset of growth hormone deficiency and then thyroid hormone deficiency and, and ultimately cortisol deficiency. Mm-hmm. So uh, relevance has to take into account those small caveats as well, as does the applicability that I had, had mentioned too. Uh, I think these are the things that make a, a specialist a specialist. It's just understanding these caveats and determining yeah. relevance on certain things. It's like, um, 
you know, there's a, a, a big movement for patients out there to want to know their reverse T3 levels. Well, that's totally irrelevant in a, in a patient who's an outpatient. Maybe you would check that in a patient in, in a hospitalized setting in the ICU to see if they have non-thyroidal illness. But we don't treat thyroid hormone replacement looking at reverse T3 levels. We look at T4, T3, and, and, and sometimes TSH I've levels. Seen those, uh, I've seen those comments in uh, some of the social media. It seems to be like a wave of, of uh, a concern about that, that that's probably generated by either misinformation or something that, that, that was published there, in. There are legions of pages out there of misinformation. And I saw one uh, as an example this morning, one of the endocrinologists posted in the endocrine Facebook group, something they had seen on their Instagram profile where a, uh, a, a, a practitioner, I don't remember it was a nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, but a practitioner had come to some cockamamie uh, conclusion that uh, their adrenal DHEA sulfate production and testosterone production, which they were told was polycystic ovary syndrome, is really related to some struggle the adrenal gland has managing sodium and you know represents an attempt to try to correct a sodium imbalance, which is totally ridiculous. You know, and uh, but the thing is, is this stuff gets out there. Yeah. Somebody reads it. It's believed. It's shared. It's read by more people. More people believe it. It's shared more. And then suddenly we have pseudoscience out there that's deemed to be accurate, true, and relevant when it's really irrelevant and wrong in the first place. Yeah. And that's one of the one of the reasons that as physicians we don't like patients to get too far off the path on Google, you know. Yeah. And I think it's one of the reasons we do pituitary world news is just to have relevant uh, information that we we believe to be accurate and scientifically correct based on what we know about endocrine physiology and pathophysiology. And we're learning new things every day, right? So, uh, but, but some of these preposterous notions do take hold and tend to spread like wildfire. Yeah, they become dangerous and create a lot more work for everybody. I'm yeah. sure. And they work their way into medical decision-making and what patients think they need, you know, when, uh, when, when uh, actually some of these things can be quite dangerous yeah. to, uh, to I, I'm wondering, yeah. I'm wondering as you're, uh, and we can talk about this later if you're going through your, um, through your outline of the things you wanted to discuss, but I'm wondering if the, uh, you know, there's this, so you know, people are advocating for joint decision-making between mm -hmm. physicians and patients, which we think, you know, in, in general terms, it's a really good idea for people to get as involved as possible in their disease. But I'm wondering how many patients you see that just say, Doc, what's wrong with me and what should I do? And uh, what, tell me what to do uh, instead of this shared decision making and, and then just take your, your advice and go home. <laughs> you know, when I was a child and probably when I was a young physician, most of the time, Patients just expected that the doctor was going to tell them what was wrong and what to do and or what they needed to know. Uh, and sometimes doctors were very paternalistic and felt patients didn't need to know they had cancer. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, you know, I think that that's changed. And yeah. I think that uh, it's more of a shared role and responsibility now. Uh, we, we work for our patients. You know, I, I don't think of myself as working for my chairman or my institution. I work for my patients. Yeah. I work at my institution. Uh, 
uh, and my work is supervised by my chairman, but I work for my patients. And I think that that's the way most physicians are. I'm sure there's still a lot of paternalistic, uh, overbearing, I'm, I'm the doctor, I'm going to make the decisions. If you don't like it, hit the highway, go find another doctor types out there. But I think yeah. that the, I think that this is the era of recognizing that we partner together to uh, take care of people. Yeah. With that said, there are there are certain situations and occasions where the physician has to take the lead and and prescribe therapy, you know, and not prescribe after a discussion, but to prescribe this is what needs to be done, this is what you have to do. You know, you have to have surgery for this problem, for example, or I want you to have radiotherapy to take care of your residual tumor, and I, I want you to consider one of these three medicines, you know, so. So we still do that, but but then it's really up to the patient to sort of buy into that and recognize the reason for the that sort of strong prescription, if you will, uh, and then to uh, comply with the treatment that's recommended with an understanding of mm. why there's going to be treatment in the first place. Uh, but I think that uh, I, I think we are more in line now with that shared decision making. But yeah. it is difficult. But I had a patient this week who uh, said. I didn't go to Google. Tell me what you think I need to do. Just exactly that. You know, yeah. This was a new diagnosis of pituitary adenoma. And I referred her to pituitary world news to learn things because I yeah. think that we try to get people information they can trust and rely upon. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we, we still see that, but it's the exception rather than the rule where I think it used to be the rule. That's and, interesting. And it, yeah. Certainly, before so before the internet explosion and access to information, you know, it used to be that you either had to go to your library or, or have a family home medical guide, so that the physicians really were the repositories of information mm-hmm. and knowledge. But now that knowledge is out there. You know, you have to you have to measure it because if if you don't have a medical degree and haven't spent a lot of time studying the intricacies of physiology and pharmacology, you can't really fully grasp it. Most people exactly. Can, most people can learn the language and the lingo and, and understand it basically. But, uh, uh, you know, we, uh, we certainly have a better opportunity for patients to be informed than we ever used to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's changed the, the landscape of the doctor patient relationship and made it more of that middle ground where it's a give and take and a shared responsibility for things. Yeah. The, 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 the discussion that's really interesting is, uh, you know, the, the, the patient as a consumer of healthcare and not as a patient, you know, the yeah. differences and how that affects, uh, uh, decision-making, you know, yeah. the shared decision-making and, and the responsibility that the patient has to, I think learn as much as possible, and then, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, it's very well. And you know, when we're it just came to mind while we we're thinking about this, I started my morning uh, thinking that uh, the devil has crept into the doctor-patient relationship. <laughs> and what I mean by that is the I turn on my computer, I go to my inbox, and we you know we have inboxes that include labs, messages from patients, and all sorts of places and people and things. And yeah. my, the very first message I looked at this morning was uh, from uh, the nurse on our team indicating that a patient's insurance company had disallowed the prescription for DDAVP nasal spray for vasopressin deficiency, otherwise known as diabetes insipidus. Yeah. Um, and they insisted that the patient try the tablets before and fail the tablets before trying the 
nasal spray. Well, the patient's been on nasal spray for a long time. The nasal spray works better than the tablets. It's much more reliable. It's a better treatment in many ways. It's uh, And it's what the patient wants to continue. So like, who in the world is this in here trying to get in the middle of this doctor-patient relationship yeah. and, pra- and tell me how to practice medicine, tell my patient what they have to take? And that's the devil. You know, that's the insurance company and the third-party payers who think they have a say. And, and they're solely financially motivated uh, so they can keep more money than they spend. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and that's wholly inappropriate. And unfortunately, oftentimes now we might want to start a patient on a particular drug, say for acromegaly or Cushing's, and the insurance company tells us, no, we can't. Yeah. We have to try something else instead. And they're doing that not necessarily based on protocols or guidelines. They're usually doing that based on financial considerations. So it's the doctor, the patient, the devil uh, who are doing the medical decision-making together these days. And that is happening, uh, what what you just mentioned, it's happening so much more today than it was even a year or two ago. Uh, We hear it in the forums, and I I was just on the phone with somebody who was telling me uh, the insurance company was uh, uh, denying... uh, a medication for growth hormone deficiency, I can't recall exactly which one it was, for a four-year-old and making them fail, making a four-year-old fail on something else before they could get the one shot. And they had, she had to take a shot every day. And it's just like, a, um, you know, that's, it's awful for a little kid. It's just unconscionable. Unconscionable that, uh, is yeah. the right word. Child uh, abuse maybe is another good may, word for that. So. Yeah. Yeah, By a third just, party, you know? but it is even at the conference at the Acromegaly uh, 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 community conference. It was, you know, lots of discussion about that prior authorizations and and the issue with that and the potentially to get involved in some public policy uh, initiatives mm-hmm. to see if we can if we can help with this as yeah. a as a publication as an advocate. You know, it's really really important. How about uh, computers in medical decision making and, uh, um, you know, how computers today are aiding uh, in, for example, maybe early diagnosis or AI, you know, artificial intelligence. Is that is that a factor that you see in your practice or uh, you you discuss? It's a very interesting question. AI and, and the use of computers to do things has uh, been discussed basically my entire career. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was some discussion when I was in medical school that a computer might be a, hooked to a stethoscope or an electronic stethoscope might be better at determining what the cause of a murmur is than a, than a human being. And I don't ever think it got to that point where that's now the way you diagnose cardiac murmurs. I think that it still requires a physician to listen and interpret and include other things such as the history and the physical examination and measurement of the pulse and what the pulse seems to feel like and all of that. Um, I was very interested in this when I was in my training when uh, it was thought that you might be able to take the patient's top five complaints and put them into a computer and get a list or a different, what's called a differential diagnosis of the things that it uh, it might be that's affecting the patient. But then that really hasn't evolved either. Interesting. Because you would think logically that's it's where it would make the most sense to point to a primary care physician and say to think about 
a few other possibilities that they may have not have thought of. In the case of Cushing's or acromegaly, that would be sure. really, really helpful. And when I was in my training, we had uh, there were there was sort of a plethora of papers that were coming out that had these decision trees and decision nodes mm -hmm. and things like that, where you come down a path if this you go that way if that you go that way and that's evolved in a lot of the algorithms that people try to to publish along with uh, guidelines you know sort of like acromegaly surgery failed surgery do this or that or whatever you know with a list of sort of how to work your way through the, the diagnostic tree which ideally would be something you would ask a computer to do but it's been published for physicians to do that. And I, I don't believe in practicing medicine according to that schematic, just because every patient is different and no two patients require the same thing. Um, and I think you can start to try to pigeonhole people down pathways that they don't necessarily do well on or belong in uh, when, you, when you do that and use the, uh, the established guidelines. But you would think that if it would work, that we would already be doing it, given that we have all of these publications of these guidelines, we should be able to throw them into the computer, input a number of patient variables and have the computer give us an answer. But that I think would work for population-based treatments, but mm -hmm. it's not gonna work for individual patient uh, 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 decision-making because every patient is different and deserves to be treated as a separate individual. And I also think that there's something about medical professional, and I say that because I think nurses develop this just as pharmacists and everybody else, intuition, mm -hmm. if you will, so that you hear a story, you see a radiograph, you, you look at the laboratory data, you develop an intuition about um, what might be going on and that intuition guides you. And an example of that was another patient today, lots of good examples mm -hmm. today. It was a fun clinic uh, of a, of a patient where I looked at her laboratory data before we did her telemedicine visit and she's on growth hormone and her IGF one level is probably a little lower than I want it to be. And then I looked at the rest of her hormones and she was another patient who'd, who'd uh, had radiotherapy in the past and her thyroid levels had dropped just a little bit and they were probably a little lower than I want them to be, but she's not on thyroid hormone. And, uh, and even before I took, the, so IGF one's normal, thyroid hormone levels are normal. A computer would probably say this patient's normal, doesn't need treatment because the levels are normal yeah. in normal range. To me, having practiced for so long and been doing pituitary disease for nearly 30 years, I look at their IGF-1 and think, okay, that results a little bit lower than I would like for it to be. Her thyroid hormones have fallen just a little bit. They're probably a little bit lower than I want them to be, but they're in the normal range. Um, if she has anything at all that suggests that she might need adjustment in her growth hormone or her thyroid hormone, I'll, I'll potentially make those changes. So get on the call and she's, oh yeah, I just, I'm, I'm so tired. I have no energy. I tire easily. I'm, you know, I have brain fog and it's like, all right, we're going up on your thyroid, on your growth hormone. I'm starting you on thyroid. Yeah. You know? So that's the medical decision-making that's based on the patient's history. Knowing that because she had radiotherapy, I expect these levels to fall and uh, knowing that these levels have fallen just a little bit. So, you know, you, you, you use those things and you, and you make the decision. 
we're going to go up on the thyroid dose or on the growth hormone dose and we're going to start thyroid hormone uh, and then you have the decision about what dose to use for thyroid hormone so you know medical decision making occurs in a series or a chain chain reaction first you decide if she has symptoms i'm going to treat if i'm going to treat what dose am i going to use and then when am i going to follow up and what's my goal and target and all of that so medical decision making becomes this luminous voluminous ever expanding like the universe cloud of of uh of things going on all at the same time yeah. the growth hormones in one direction the thyroid hormones in another the steroids are in another what's going on with the tumors another direction so yeah uh, everything's linear but it's all in these different directions and and things like that so that's sort of sort of an example what medical decision making is all about yeah. uh, and, and and it's rooted in doing the right thing by the patient and improving the quality of life of the person it gets back to one of those three things i was talking about the relevance the applicability but here is the desired outcome the outcome is for her to feel better and her symptoms to go away but it's taking everything into conjunction and deciding that she needs these treatments yeah even though the levels are normal the computer would have missed that i think is um Medical decision making, as it, it, I'm wondering at the level of, um, you know, the primary care physician, is that more complicated? Do you think than as a specialist, because they they have to make a decision where or when to refer, and I'm thinking about you know that with our diseases, the delayed, the delays in diagnosis, that are are they re- in, in in certain way they're related to how a primary care physician looks at a disease and makes a decision uh, not to consider certain things. Um, uh, what are your thoughts in, uh, about that? Uh, very good question. I'll preface it by saying that I think primary care physicians have the most difficult jobs in medicine. I think uh, I agree without yeah, knowing because it's Yeah, because they're, they're supposed to be omniscient, omniscient and omnipotent, but there's no way they can be. Yeah, we have we hold them to a standard of being able to diagnose and treat everything, but there's no way in the world to do that. Yeah. You know, it's hard enough to keep up in the field of endocrinology, much less pituitary disease. Uh, and I can't imagine being responsible for the global health of a particular individual. So, um, the 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 decision making for the primary physician, uh, even though we want to hold them to the mat for everything. And, and, you know, I kind of, on, on this topic, I, I do sort of, um, as a specialist, we don't like to hear my primary care doctor was awful. They missed this diagnosis for 10 years. I, I'm before, sure. You know, so I agree. You know, like, because yeah. we know what, we know what, what it's primary like. care doctors are in the trenches. We know what they're doing. We know what their training is. We know what their responsibilities yeah. and their roles are and what they get exposed to. They may see one patient with acromegaly their entire career, and if, and they're probably going to miss it for a number of years if they make the diagnosis at all. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, they're doing a different sort of thing than we are. But I think that uh, the, the medical decision-making they that they make when it comes to, say, tertiary medicine or specialty disease, whether it be rheumatology, endocrinology, or gastroenterology, is to be able to recognize that there's a pattern here that suggests there's a problem that needs a specialist's attention. And uh, sometimes the diseases and the disorders are so nebulous they don't even get there. Sure. And, and, I, and I, again, don't hold them responsible in that uh, 
arena, unless it's gross negligence, mm -hmm. like a patient showing up. I think I have Cushing syndrome. No, you don't. I've never seen that. So no, you don't have it. Yeah. No, I think I have it. Look at these stretch marks, you yeah. know, for years, then that's a problem. Sure. Because you know, the patient's uh, stating what's wrong and the physician didn't learn that if you listen and let them, patients will tell you what's wrong with them. Uh, but uh, so that's, that's a, that's a different story, but uh, the, the decision making there rests on, do I examine and treat or do I send further on? Um, yeah. And, you know, it's, um, I mean, it's very interesting to me. So we had a patient this week where we heard from a, a, a primary physician um, that a patient had a positive Romberg test, which is where you stand there and hold your arms out and you ask to close your eyes. And if you start to fall or drift or whatever, it's a sign that your proprioceptive sense is gone. And we heard that the patient was having trouble falling to the right side when they walk with their eyes closed and they had some numbness in their calf and the doctor wrote us wanting to know if this was related to their pituitary problem. And I'm thinking like, my gosh, you know, where were you in neuroanatomy? This is not the pituitary. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is not the pituitary just because the patient has a pituitary problem. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, no, this is a sign of either a cerebellum, a brainstem or a spinal cord problem. And it's probably related to the posterior columns. And, uh, you know, we got involved and suggested they see a neurologist and they keep writing us, asking us for uh, our opinion about these things. And I finally said, okay, while you're waiting to see the neurologist get an MRI of the cerebellum, the brainstem, and the spinal cord and check a vitamin B12 level because this could easily be pernicious anemia as well. Um, but it sort of was an example of primary physicians not even thinking and doing, and, and doing the right studies and getting the patient to the right group of doctors mm -hmm. and sort of making this conclusion. And I had a little bit of an issue with that, you know. Um, I was very polite about it and just yeah. suggested the tests and to get the patient to the neurologist. Uh, but you know, the, the pituitary bone is not connected to the spinal cord bone to sort of bring up the old song about the leg bone connected yeah. to the <laughs> knee bone, you know? So um, there are things that primary physicians must know and have to know, and they have to sort of make the decision about where is the potential disease to refer to the appropriate specialty. And I don't think that this primary care physician did a very good job calling on the pituitary doctors. And yeah. I see this all the time, by the way, that primary care physicians will say, call your endocrinologist. It's got to be a hormone problem. And they call us or they have a visit. It's like, everything is in order. Your levels are perfect and it's not a hormone problem. And uh, you know, I think I've talked before about patients that I've seen who ended up having leukemia, constrictive pericarditis, all sorts of other disease processes when doctor said it was their pituitary and I said, no, it's yeah. something else. Go see. I try to help them and be that doctor that says it sounds like a neurological problem or it sounds like a problem with maybe heart failure or anemia or whatever. Uh, yeah. And the primary yeah. physician's clearly not doing that um, just to try to advocate for patients. Um, but yeah, it's tough being a primary physician. And I think that uh, their medical decision-making uh, sort of applies in their arena and many of them are some of the best physicians you'd ever see. Um, but they're not going to understand the caveats of pituitary disease or 
aplastic anemia or, or some odd rheumatologic condition, they're going to be able to do fairly well with most things. But, uh, uh, you know, 10% of the stuff they deal with, they're not going to be able to manage. They're going to have to refer out probably. Yeah. Well, it looks like we're getting close to the end of the hour. I was going to remind any, everybody listening that we, you're listening to live talk at Pituitary World News and with uh, myself, Jorge Fascinetti, and Dr. Lewis Blevins. Um, so uh, is there anything else that you want to cover, Dr. Blevins, that we haven't uh, chatted about? I think it's been a really great comprehensive uh, discussion about uh, the complexities of, of, of decision-making. Yeah, it's been uh, interesting. One other thing I do want to say is that um, the, uh, I was glad to hear that you found that there was a society that's studying medical decision-making. I wasn't aware of that, but yeah. it is a critical area of thinking. And uh, I, I think it's important to, try to understand why healthcare providers make decisions they do, what guides them and how they loop patients yeah. in. And it would also be interesting to study the patient decision-making, you know, when, how, many, how many times does a patient leave the doctor's office and think, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to take that medicine. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to know the field of patient decision-making and sort of what are patients doing with the information after they leave the office if yeah. they decide to, Either A, go see another doctor, or B, not take the prescribed medicine, or C, decide, I feel better with that. I think I'll take more, because <laughs> so, that does happen all the time. You know, we, it's it's common. It's it's surprising how common it is that people will say, that testosterone made me feel so much better. I'm going to double the dose. And then they come in with very high levels. Yeah. I, I never get upset about them because they're just doing what a normal person would do. Yeah. Hey, a little bit felt good. I think a lot's going to feel better, you know, so. which is not necessarily true, right? I mean, it'll yeah. feel better, but maybe have some other consequences. Yeah. But wouldn't it be interesting to understand the concept of patient decision-making as it relates to, how do they choose this physician? Why do they stay with this one? Why did they move to another? Why did yeah. they, Why well, did you do that as a patient? You know. Yeah, I just scratched so. the surface on the research. Really, I think there was a lot more uh, to look at in depth. Uh, uh, when I just looked at in a cursory look at the uh, at medical decision making uh, scholarly articles, so it would be interesting to to find out um, the about the Society for Medical Decision Making, which is. Uh, the, into the organization that you were referring to. Yeah. So, well, fortunately, the, the whole concept of medical decision-making is recognized by uh, insurance companies and, and uh, Center for Medicaid Services or Medicare Services to an extent because they, they take that into consideration when they review notes to determine the level of service provided to a patient. Yeah. Uh, and it's based on the, the number of, pieces of data that are reviewed, the amount of uh, 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 problems that a patient has, for example, and uh, the uh, complexity of the decisions like a surgery or radiotherapy required, what's the severity of the illness and things like that. So if you look at it from a purely regulatory perspective, those are that's what medical decision-making means to insurance companies mm -hmm. and, uh, and, the, and the federal government. Interesting. That, uh, looks at healthcare. So, 
medical decision, we call it MDM, medical decision making mm -hmm. means different things to different entities. And um, uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. People look at it from different perspectives. Yeah. So collectively, we can put it all together and come up with an understanding of uh, what it means when doctors and patients do the, the work that they do. So well, we, we also should remind everybody that we record these um, live shows and you can hear them on uh, uh, all of the shows are listed in our, in our uh, pituitary world news live talk on demand section. So, yeah, the last thing I'll say is we have a, another group of timid listeners that we, we want people to call in <laughs> uh, and uh, tell us what you think. Uh, yeah, call enough. us on our, call us on our nonsense, but also teach us about your experience. Yeah. And offer some other suggestions and subjects too, that we're always looking yeah. uh, interesting things to discuss. So uh, we are um, going to line up some guests for our upcoming uh, talk show and, a live show, and we're going to uh, publish those as soon as we have them all set up. So stay tuned. Awesome. Yeah, well, this was an excellent discussion. Thanks for provoking it, and uh, uh, it's good to see you again. And um, until next time. I will see you next time. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a non-profit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening. <laughs>